Hello, beautiful people of podcast land. Welcome back. My guest today is Carl Benjamin, the YouTuber formerly known as Sargon of Akkad, a political commentator and host of the Lotus Eaters podcast. It feels like literally a decade of history has happened already in 2021, so I invited Carl on to try and make sense of the madness. Today, expect to learn Carl's opinion on Stephen Crowder suing Facebook, what a future with Wall Street bets in will look like, whether there is a common thread between J.K. Rowling and Jordan Peterson, whether American national pride is dwindling, and much more. Also, he recorded it locally on the most beautiful, lovely, brand new Lotus Eaters podcast studio setup ever. So this is just like, it's like butter. It's like I'm pouring very, very lovely, warm British butter into your ears. So enjoy, enjoy the butter. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. But now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Carl Benjamin. Man, I've just been on Twitter. Is it possible to browse any trends on there without it being hijacked by K-pop and Bollywood posts? I, I don't know why you'd ask me. I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, no, but you use it, right? You look at the trending side. I have to, yeah. Um, to be honest with you, I'm always glad when I log into Twitter and it's some K-pop nonsense that's trending instead of <laughs> Jews, Nazis, or Holocaust. Because these terms trend on Twitter all the time. And it just makes me think, God, this is an absolute hell site. You know, I, I use like, you know, Twitter alternatives and never do these terms ever trend. And so it's like, right, okay, that's very interesting and very revealing about the mindset of the people who use various platforms, isn't it? Uh, another year, another studio, another YouTube channel. How's everything going with the yes. Lotus Eaters stuff? Uh, it's going really, really well, uh, really well. Um, everything's up and running. Everything is self-sufficient. Uh, we have lots of subscribers, uh, which essentially means sort of patrons, but pay for everything. And we work very hard providing them with premium content, articles from academics, book club reviews that we do. And, uh, and, and the sort of podcasts that we can't put on YouTube because we're talking about subjects that are essentially verboten in some ways. Uh, and so it's, it's been a sort of real lease of life as well to be able to have some freedom to talk about things in a way that the editors at Silicon Valley don't approve. Man, that's so good. What's the name from? The name is from the Odyssey. Uh, the, the Island of the Lotus Eaters is the first island that Odysseus and his crew arrive at. And the, the reason I like it, and I've always found it, like it's always been set in my mind, because in every other island and in every other event that the crew uh, and Odysseus go th through, um, there's danger there's some kind of deep danger that underlies it. either it's a very obvious brutal one like the men getting eaten by the cyclopses or they get changed into animals by Circe or whoever and 
so there's there's an ill will, an evil will that underpins all of the other islands. But on the island of the Lotus Eaters, there doesn't appear to be. We only get like a few paragraphs in the Odyssey, and so a lot has been extrapolated uh, extrapolated from that that doesn't really exist in the text. Like you know, but the the thing it seems to represent, in my view, is a paradigm shift. And so the 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 crew he sends out to the island to meet the island uh, the, the the islanders, um, they just don't want to return to the ships. They just decide that they like the place they're in and that's where they want to stay. And Odysseus has to get other crewmen to go and drag them back to the ships, which is kind of bad news for them, really, because everyone dies on Odysseus's journey <laughs> apart from Odysseus. Uh, so Odysseus is the only one of them who makes it back to Ithaca alive. And so you can't help but think, man, it probably would have been better for the crew members if they just stayed where they were, you know, mm. they would have been okay. So Lotus Seed, and, is, Lotus Seed is your safe space. Yeah. Actually, that's that's kind of the way I've been looking at it. Like, um, because because we've got um, a bit of a buffer from the uh, vulnerability of social media deplatforming, you know, uh, which is obviously the sort of Damocles that hangs above all our heads these days. If we speak about anything that's slightly unorthodox, um, the, the 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 you know the the worry is that because obviously you don't want to get deplatformed; it'd be bad. You you know your reach would be severely diminished and things like this, but. The, the way that the business has been set up has been very, I mean, I guess I'd say conservative, but I suppose a better word would be prudent, uh, so that if we got deplatformed off of all of the Silicon Valley platforms, we would still be employed to do something by the people who support and subscribe to us. So, yeah, it, 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 in many ways, it's kind of like... Um, kind of like a safe space for people who are afraid of being persecuted. Is that what we're going to see more of, do you think, creators using the existing channels as like the front end of the funnel and then trying to get people off that and onto an owned platform as quickly as possible. I see a lot of people talking about building up newsletters and mailing lists now for that same reason. Um, I mean, it's, excuse me. <coughs> <coughs> Sorry, I don't know if you caught my throat there. Um, it, seem, it seems to be inevitable, doesn't it? It seems to be there's no particular choice um, because if Silicon Valley is subject to nothing but its own arbitrary whims and their arbitrary whims are if you misgender someone, we're going to delete your Twitter account. We're going to, if you say the wrong thing about COVID or the US election or something like that, we're going to delete your YouTube account. <coughs> it becomes obvious that it's necessary for people to take steps to protect themselves and uh, i mean like i I've, I've i got banned from twitter for swear words uh, insults against uh, i was arguing with nazis in 2017 and uh, i got banned because i was uh, too offensive to the nazis which fair enough you know that's not part of like the deplatforming uh, operation um and so i don't regard my ban from twitter as part of like the political deplatforming although maybe there was a political aspect to it because I'm not a leftist. You know, if I was a leftist, maybe I'd been given some grace or something. But I don't know, so I won't assume. But um and so I, I haven't actually been deplatformed from anything really. I'm still on Facebook, I'm still on YouTube, still on, you know, all of the other Silicon Valley platforms. Um but if they can deplatform the current sitting president in a in a in only a few days and just mercilessly delete all of his accounts, um, I don't think anyone should take any risks. Uh, even though, like I said, I don't think I'm that risky or extreme or anything like that i mean you know i'm a democrat or I'm, I'm for democracy i'm for incrementalism like you know an evolutionary sort of political perspective i'm not a revolutionary i don't want to burn things down i don't want civil wars i don't want any of these things and so i don't think i'm very spicy politically i think i'm, I'm kind of a liberal centrist in many ways you know in, in most ways 
Yeah, basically, yeah, and that's actually the, the, the curry I choose when I'm in India as well, because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm quite militant. But, um, but I do oppose political correctness, and that can get you in trouble. So you've got to make your preparations as best as you can make them, I think. Did you see that Stephen Crowd is suing Facebook? Have you seen this? I heard about it, but I haven't looked into it. Uh, could you tell me anything? Yeah, yeah. So he's got that, what's it called, Asian Lawyer John or something? Um, mm-hmm. Unfair competition. Half Asian, I believe. Yeah, half Asian lawyer, John. Yep. I've just misraced him there. Uh, oh, dear. Unfair competition, fraud, false advertising, and antitrust. So apparently they removed Crowder's election stream, which is the biggest independent election stream ever. And he's yeah. saying that they've been throttling his reach, even though Facebook told the press and Congress that they don't do that anymore. Mm. That's big, man. Well, that's huge, yeah. And uh, if if anyone's in a position to actually leverage uh, Facebook and social media in this way, it's Crowder. And I I, I saw his uh, comeback video, uh, which was excellent. Really, really high quality production for a guy who runs a YouTube channel with his team. I was like, wow, that's actually amazing. Um, but yeah, no, I'm 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 glad that um, sort of counterweights like Stephen Crowder exist. Uh, I don't agree with everything he says, obviously, but then who agrees with everything anyone says? I don't even agree with everything I say. You know, so, so I'll get, look back a year or two but in the past and be like, I was an idiot. You know, I didn't understand that at all. What was I doing? Uh, but, uh, but I'm glad that the, the sort of plurality of opinions in the marketplace still sustains people like Stephen Crowder, you know, because I think that's necessary and healthy. Does anyone believe that tech platforms are impartial anymore? I don't see how you could. I don't, I don't think they make any pretense to impartiality anymore either, especially when the partiality is baked into the terms and conditions. Uh, Twitter being the best example of you can't misgender someone. It's like, sorry, there is only one ideology, probably in all of human history, that has made a big deal about gender identity and, uh, you know, gender expression in the way that the, the left is now. We all know what ideology is. This is intersectionality. And it's very obvious that this is, uh, therefore, an intersectional domain if you can actually lose your account. I mean, like, I've, I've had friends who have been suspended for calling people dude, which I consider to be a fairly gender neutral, uh, you know, in, an informal gender neutral way of referring to a person. And it, it's, it's also, um, sort of part of a, uh, how to describe it, like uh, a sort of informal social pattern uh, of behavior where you, if you call someone dude, you realize that you, you're setting the context for the interaction. So, you know, if I say, hey, mate, you know, I don't expect you to call me sir or be formal or say, you know, Mr. This or whatever. And you, you realize that we're having a, a friendly conversation that has goodwill behind it. You know, it, it, it implies a kind of goodwill when I enter into the conversation. And so like, in 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 my world in the in the social spheres i exist in um calling someone dude isn't me saying you're a man whereas in the sort of i guess san francisco californian left-wing view of things actually oh my goodness you've just misgendered this is a high crime against twitter's terms of service you must be banned it's always the worst possible implication like the worst possible way that i interpretation interpretation sorry there, 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 there definitely is an element of that, um, but I, I also think there's a kind of dogmatic view of certain words, like um, the F word, right, that we can't say anymore. Uh, now, I, I, I grew up watching South Park, and from watching South Park, I actually had not connected really that word to homosexuality. I connected that word to a kind of 
um, insufferable childish behavior, which is not, in my opinion, limited to people who are gay. And so I didn't consider it to be a particularly bad word, but it's now been, I guess, reclaimed by the LGBT lobby, the sort of activist lobby, and stigmatized. So now that word is actually a, a very bad word. That's the equivalent of like the N-word and things like this. It's, oh God, now we've, we've actually, you know, from a word being actually relatively benign and you know, not trivial has become something again, you can get banned or suspended for from these platforms. It's like, wow, that's, that's interesting. Weaponizing words that had otherwise lost their power. I would have thought was the opposite of the direction that the progressives would want to go in. But I suppose it does give them a useful tool with which to sort of browbeat and ha- harry the, uh, the wrong thinkers. So yeah. I've been trying to think about why social media always seems to throttle people like Stephen Crowder, like right instead of left. And I get it that like in the eyes of big corporations mm. that the left wing's associated with compassion and virtue and the right's associated with intolerance and bigotry, uh, even yeah. if that, may sometimes seem like it's actually being flipped on its head. But I can't work out if that explains it all. Like, is there an element that because conservatives, especially in America, they tend to play quite fast and loose with claims in a way which is more easily disputed. So the crazier claims of the left seem to be more esoteric and unfalsifiable, whereas the crazier claims of the right seem to be at least rooted in reality, even if they're unhinged. Do we, can, can we, can we think of an example of each of those just so, uh, so when we're talking about semantic overload, when people are playing mm-hmm. around with what words mean with all lives mm-hmm. matter versus black lives matter, for instance, um, mm-hmm. but for people on the right, if the, it would be to do with, um, perhaps the way that uh, workers are being moved out of jobs about stats to do with immigration, they may be inflated yep. and they may be wrongly cited, but at mm. least they're falsifiable. <clears throat> yes. Um, okay. Yeah. The, yeah, the one, so the way, the, the way that I think about it um, and, and from the way you've just laid that out um, is the fact that the left, the academic left at the moment seems to be essentially rooted in semantics games. Uh, The redefinition of words, in fact. And the right, in my experience, and I'm not saying this is exclusive or anything, actually tends to just use the common English language definitions of words. And this is this is why it's actually quite a pleasure to read someone like Thomas Sowell, right? Because he just lays out, he, he never has to redefine a word because he just uses it in the common English parlance because he's not trying to be a pretentious academic about it. He's trying to just lay out, look, this is the data. This is my interpretation of said data in a common sense, straightforward manner. Uh, do you find this persuasive? And it turns out that actually millions of people find this, find this persuasive. Whereas the left have to come up with very, as you said, esoteric, ways of looking at things and actually well let me tell you what the real definition of a woman is let me tell you about the real definition of patriarchy is let me tell you about the real and it's what hang on a second you know i didn't agree to any of these real real definite redefinitions uh and i don't agree to the definition you finally come out with um the classic example being of course the definition of a woman for a for a right winger i guess uh which means essentially just someone who isn't politicized into the culture war, uh, a woman in the dictionary is an adult human female, which is a good and sensible definition. It's got particular limits, it has essential characteristics, and it's not self-referential. So you're not uh, going around in a circle when you're trying to define it. So it makes sense. You don't need to actually think about that any any further, really. And that's probably why it's the basic definition. Whereas the left's version is a woman is anyone who identifies as a woman, which is actually a really concerning definition, isn't it? Because you realize, well, hang on a second. A, you haven't define the word. A woman is anyone who identifies as 
a woman is anyone who identifies as a woman is anyone who identifies as. And so you've got this recurring loop in the definition of the word. And so the sentence is never actually completed. So we don't have a definition there anyway. Uh, obviously, being self-referential, it gives us no information on what a woman actually is other than some kind of being that identifies as this empty word this this word that has yet to be given any content um and also the weird thing about it and i've been thinking about this a lot because like what the 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 important thing about definitions is also what's excluded from the definition not just what's included because if you take out the term adult from the definition of woman then what you're saying is that non-adults and maybe even non-humans uh, if you take out the the human part could identify as women and that's really weird, isn't it? Because I've actually had a child come up to me when I was doing my Southwest uh, MEP tour. Um, I actually had like a 12-year-old girl come up to me and say th- something like, I'm a woman, uh, you know, don't oppress me, I'm, a, you know, because I'm a feminist or something. And it was really weird because it's like, look, you're actually not a woman. <laughs> you know, you're a child. You're, you're not a woman. So why has this child decided that they can come up to me and act like they're so- some sort of moral authority on the subject of what being a woman is since they haven't got to the stage in life that is womanhood anyway um and the implications of like you know taking out the 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 requirement of it being an adult is actually kind of worrying and probably something that should be put back in so i mean even even if you were going to be an insectionalist about it you'd be like okay a woman is any adult who identifies as a woman would be a perfectly acceptable no, it wouldn't be acceptable, but it would be a better step up than just having it as completely open, you know, because I mean, it opens up the possibility. If we could somehow show that this pig identified as a woman, would we be justified in treating it as a woman, you know? And and how would we justify not treating it as a woman, you know? So it, it obviously, I don't think that we'll be able to show that, but the, the possibilities are strange and silly and it's because we've moved away from the essential characteristics. And uh, I think... That you end up in this sort of this kind of hollow world because there, there was a, a, a UN Women's uh, conference uh, upon which this um, a, a disabled black speaker woman uh, lady female I, I mean I I don't know how I'm supposed to characterize her but uh, she said that a woman is something like it was something like shapeless and formless and timeless and eternal it's like this is sounding like an elder god from cthulhu <laughs> like a, a shapeless formless timeless entity it's like well, what what the hell is the use of the term woman anymore you know why would anyone want to transition to become a woman or identify as a woman if there's no form or shape or definition to it mm. well, what was the point of this yeah you know and so th- th- this this gives strength to the turf argument that actually they're trying to obliterate the, the term woman and this will damage women's rights because obviously if you can't define what a woman is and identify a woman from anything else how can you have women's rights and they've got a point so that's a very slippery game, playing around with yes. semantics and semantic overload. And yes. I think that what Crowder does when he does make his arguments, his arguments are at least rooted in things that can be falsified and that people can complain about. Yes. Whereas with that, it's always just a game of trying to catch this incredibly slippery eel. And as soon as you yes. get anywhere close to it, it changes form into smoke and Cthulhu and pisses off. That, that That's exactly how I feel about it. And that's that's why unfortunately a lot of modern discourse has come down to games of semantics which is actually terribly tiresome if you think about it because it doesn't advance anything it ends up meaning you get kind of bogged down in incredibly pedantic conversations but unfortunately i guess that if this is the the current ideological and philosophical trend that swept the west we've got to engage with it as it is right honestly man only in a world where we've managed to 
whatever it is, reduce global poverty by 80% 20 <laughs> years sooner than the World Health Organization said that we were going to, would this be a thing that we can do? It's oddly a very yes. luxurious position to be in, to be able to talk about that kind of nuance when it's just to do with language. Previously, we'd have just been happy with a meal. And that's not for me to say that we don't want society to continue to progress and iterate and further and further refine the level at which we consider human flourishing. But man, like there's a lot of big things needs to be done and i don't feel like arguing over the finer definitions of words are, are one of them you know like let's you know colonize the solar system and then we get round to it then um there was a thing <laughs> it, it was it was last year uh talking about how mars needed to be decolonized so they were cons- but we haven't even colonized it yet <laughs> and that right there is the is the punchline that um they were concerned, there was a particular group, decolonizingmars.org, I think, or decolonizemars.org. They were concerned that colonial that colonial structures were going to be moved into new worlds. Um, and it was obviously <laughs> hilarious that we're talking about decolonizing a, pal- a planet that we haven't even colonized yet. There, there, there was an article a few years ago um, during Gamergate from The Guardian where they were speculating that Gamergate would arrive on Mars if we didn't do something about this uh, <laughs> unchecked rampant populism. And uh, as Elon Musk seems to be leading the charge on that, actually. So, you know, God, Godspeed. Um, yeah, no, the, the, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Um, the, the, but the thing is, and I, I like the way you frame it, right? Because you, you've got like, look, there is a big wide solar system out there. Hey, I mean, we've got enough on the earth that we haven't yet essentially conquered for mankind. Uh, but we've got this massive solar system out there. And all semantic games occupy the sort of realm of the intellectual, right? So nothing physical changes with these semantic games. And so literally, as you say, we, we are just hit this wall. We've stopped. Now we're playing these semantic games on a level that doesn't really change the the material reality we're on, you know, because you can say anything you like, but at the end of the day, unless you take some action, unless something is accomplished, then we've traveled zero feet, you know, we've traveled zero distance. Uh, and yeah. And, Are you and, familiar with uh, Robin Hansen's great filter hypothesis? Do you know what this is? I am not. Okay, so um, Robin Hansen is a very clever philosopher. He's postulated that the reason we don't see aliens, the, the answer to the Fermi paradox, is potentially that there is a great filter, a barrier that all civilizations need to get over before they can colonize galaxies. And mm-hmm. it could be the uh, beginning of life. It could be the presence of liquid water. It could be the mo- It could be feminism. It could be playing semantic fucking games. If the reason <laughs> that we don't become a galaxy colonizing civilization is because we were playing semantic games, we didn't deserve to. Yes, that's correct. If, if feminists are preventing us from exploring the galaxy, uh, we deserve it. Yeah. We deserve it. Uh, what's your opinion on the madness of Wall Street bets and Wall Street at the moment? Uh, it's It's the same... The same kind of um, phenomena as Gamergate, uh, where you have the, the the vast collection of small people looking up at the giant institution and saying, well, why them and not me? And then when they start making any kind of motions, the giant institution moves to protect its interests, which means breaking the rules and acting arbitrarily, uh, acting in a way that nobody really expected them to act, um, like Robinhood ceasing the the buying of uh, GME shares. Like that's 
I mean, that was just done purely to protect Robinhood as a company. It wasn't even to protect Wall Street um, because they had this vulnerability because everything has limits, I suppose. But there's obviously, I think that there's probably um, shenanigans going on behind the scenes at this point because I think they've realized, oh my God, this is actually, this has cost Wall Street in total something like $70 billion. And that's massive, you know, for a bunch of idiots on reddit who have just spent a few hundred bucks buying a couple of cheapo shares that are not really worth anything anyway uh but it's it's the will that's behind it that's important isn't it it's the oppositional will and i think that essentially what the i guess i will generally characterize as the elite in any sphere of life right it could be politics which is why we get donald trump it could be gamergate and video games which is why gamergate occurred it could be uh in trading and stocks which is why it's you know wall street bets and the game stonks revolt um and it, it i've seen many people in other different uh walks of life in minor ways finding themselves diametrically opposed to the elite class and the elite class essentially have to come to the table and admit that they have accrued more than is justifiable in some terms and in some ways. And this is not always money or anything like that. This is that what, what, what we're talking about really is just the sort of abstract and almost indefinable uh, or unquantifiable uh, concept of power and influence. Um, the, the little guys feel that they don't have, the influence they deserve, and that's probably true. And the big guys feel that the influence that they have accrued is being attacked and being taken from them, which is also true. Uh, but the question is, is there a justified rebalancing that can take place? And I think a consensual conversation about how these things could be made more fair is definitely preferable to the kind of civic war that we're going to see happening between groups of people within the same industries. And so far, this has not been handled well. So far, it has been a kind of social war uh, between the various factions. And they don't end well. It costs everyone lots of money. It's lots of stress. People lose things. And it, it, it rarely turns out well. And it just bodes towards... Uh, it's kind of a downward spiral where these things, if they're not resolved to the general satisfaction, just continue to increase the pressure. So the next time the event is bigger and bigger. And this is why like Gamergate, I would say, was probably about 50,000 people at its height, uh, which is actually really small for the video game industry. But uh, when you, when you, you know, scaling this up to the Wall Street bets thing, you can tell that there's a lot of the same people who supported Gamergate and various other sort of populist uprisings like Trump, uh, who also support Wall Street bets, even though they're not the same people doing it and they're not interested in that sphere of life. Um, but the, the you can see the pressures ramping up. And like the Wall Street bets thing has been huge. Uh, their subreddit was something like 2.8 million when it started, and now it's over 6 million. So it's like you can see the, the just the graph shoot up in the number of people who are interested in this thing and who want to take part in pushing back against what they view, I think, rightly, as a kind of ignorant, detached, and self-interested elite class. It's not new. All throughout history, this has happened. It's been a common thing. And this is just the 21st century iteration of this. And so here we are. The difference is now that you've got the ability to coordinate so effectively. The mm. proletariat can now gather en masse and they yeah. can do things instantly. And there's no matter how big the hedge fund is, we've seen here power in numbers on the internet timed correctly with a little bit of manipulation of algorithms and 
enough understanding of what's going on and a lot of caffeine. Like you combine those things together and it's and a subreddit. Like, do you think this is the sort of thing that's going to end up with legislation being put in long term? Because this can continue to happen, this level of coordination. It's it's not even that it can continue to happen. It's that it's almost impossible to stop. Correct. Um, especially when you don't know that it's going to happen. Like the Wall Street bets thing. I'd never heard of Wall Street bets until about a week ago. Oh, dude, you know, when this dude all- I've been I've been following them for around about a year. They are fen- oh, yeah. they are phenomenal. They're so good. Yeah. But that being said, I, I remember looking at it when it had seven hundred k or so on yeah. the on the subreddit, and they were watching people lose their life savings on Apple. Like one person had a legend. If you want to go back and look at the best stuff, mm-hmm. YouTube search dankest trades of Wall Street right. bets, and they did a quarterly roundup of like the most mad shit. So these guys have been doing it for a very long time. But yeah, the, the mm-hmm. legislation. Oh yeah, no, no, I, 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 I understand they've been doing it for a while and whatnot. But it's just um, when it becomes injected into the popular consciousness through this kind of event you know then it suddenly uh, becomes a much bigger thing I, I imagine that they probably will try to create some sort of legislation against this but uh, but the problem is like okay you'll legislate against that thing but the emotion and the impetus behind it hasn't gone away it's like you know if, if you've got a, a a hose that you're piping water through a high pressure and the the hose springs a leak and you put your finger down on it okay but the pressure hasn't gone away you're just artificially preventing that pressure from exhibiting at this point and so it bursts up again somewhere else you got to put another thing down another thing down and until the entire thing will split open because you've just got too many uh too many points on it that you're holding down because the the thing that is containing the pressure isn't suitable to contain the pressure, which is why you're getting these problems in the first place. And so what this requires is reform. You know, it's a demand for reform when these things happen, because it shows that there's a problem with the system. And every system that's built by mankind is going to be flawed in some way. And over time, the problems that are created by those flaws build up until they're unacceptable, and the system has to change. This is just the the nature of human planning. Um, and it would, I think, be wiser for those people who currently benefit from the system to accept that that is a an immutable reality of things that men build and roll with the punches rather than uh, become authoritarian and start clamping down and, you know, legislate, oh, we have to protect ourselves. Because then, I mean, it's not even, it's not even just that, hey, this isn't going to work in the long run. It'll work in the short run, but it was not going to work in the long run. And it might end up quite nastily in the long run. But um, it's, it's not just that. It's, it shows that you aren't really um, accountable. And it shows that you aren't really interested in a good faith uh, society, and that's the basis of civil society, rather than rather than any kind of like um, ancient or monarchical or oppressive society. What we have in the West is what we call a civil society, and that's a consensual society, society into which we all enter and agree on a certain set of rules, so we won't have designs on our neighbours, and our neighbours won't have designs on us, and we'll be able to operate freely and consensually through voluntary interactions and in, in transactions, governed by fair laws, and we can all just get on with our lives. And that sounds really appealing, doesn't it? Uh, but as soon as you get an elite class that's like, actually, no, you can't do these things that we can do, we've got rules that you don't have, then it becomes, right, so we've got an, you know, an evil and ill will that underpins this thing and then it becomes uncomfortable because but then people have got designs on what you have because they don't think you have it fairly because you don't have it fairly you got it by having a rule for you and a rule for them and never the twain should meet and so it's 
it, it creates instability in the system. And when it gets to this point, we've just got a, an open public revolt that's just essentially burning money to hurt Wall Street. Okay, you've got you've gone wrong. You've gone wrong. Something has been messed up. You need to come to the table. You know, get get the Wall Street bets guys to just elect you know, representatives, tell them, look, elect like five people that you guys can trust, you know, and then send them to our headquarters. We'll sit down, we'll live stream the debate and we'll live stream the, the negotiation. So everyone can see it's totally transparent. And we'll, we'll, what do you want? What do we want? And we'll try and come to a compromise. And that way people could feel like they won. Both sides could feel like they won something. You know, the Wall Street guys would feel that they, they're not about, like they've got armed guards at the, the bull outside Wall Street now. It's like, look, if you need armed guards for just, you know, a private <laughs> institution- it's not working. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You, you're doing something that people hate, and you <laughs> should stop. You know. Uh, so, but I mean, no, that's not going to happen. This is yeah, utopian. It would be, it would be so good, man. I had um, yeah. I had Michael Malice on the show uh, this oh, week. He's good, isn't he? He's yeah, phenomenal. He's yeah, and I yeah. asked him about anarchy and kind of how it works and what it means. And uh, yeah. fuck me if it doesn't explain a lot. Like he was talking about when you see the powers that be take the gloves off. That's mm. when you realize actually they don't care about you. They'll yep. give you the semblance of a piece of cheese for every time that you do a little trick yep. up until the point at which you you find a way around the, the cheese game and you manage to get the whole wheel and then they'll come in with a hammer and hit you over the head. And yep. as you said just there, it's not a long-term viable strategy. If you no. decide to scale this over time, trust gets erased. You can, in one event, erase decades of trust with the people yep. or with an industry or with a community or whatever. And um, yeah, man. I, I, and that that's that's bad. That's the that's where a, a stable society starts becoming unstable. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an anarchist, but I can accept that that is a legitimate anarchist critique of a state and you know large scale systems, and it is a legitimate anarchist critique. Um, and so it needs to be it needs to be spoken about. And one of one of Michael Malice's strong points. I've I've only watched a few uh, live streams of them, like Tim Pool and Joe Rogan and things like this. Um, but one of the things that he's really good at is identifying the will that underpins actions. You know, he's in, you, I, it took me a while to notice that why his critiques were so incisive, and it's because he's addressing this will that becomes self evident when you actually look at the actors that are taking actions. You realize, yeah, this you know you don't do these things from a position of good faith. You know, you don't do that. And uh, and he's really good at identifying that, I think. That's why I love people that are bothered about the individual. Michael's very, very concerned about personal yeah. sovereignty and individual agency and upward mobility and stuff like that. But he has the broader spectrum, spectrum understanding. So he can see the big picture. He can see that paradigm. Mm. But he's concerned with individual motivations. And when you realize that all that big stuff are, are aggregates of individual stuff – and yeah. you can get right to the root of it. You get you get some some really good insights. There's a something I've been thinking about. Do you think? Well, but before we before we yeah, go yeah. on to that, I, I just want to. You, you're absolutely right there, and I just want to re reinforce that by by pointing out this is why the communist critiques of capitalism always fail, right? And this is why the the modern communist critiques are especially bad because they always approach it with businesses are purely about making money, and that might be true if you were to abstract the concept of a business into a realm that is not connected to people. And in this abstract realm, you just look at the interests of the institution itself. But then you realize, well, as you say, you know, everything is actually individual action. And so when you look at the individuals involved, you realize they have ethical motivations. They have moral goals. They are not just these like soulless corporate lunatics. And we can see this in Silicon Valley. You know, they've, they've adopted a kind of ideology that 
gives them license to actually persecute some other kinds of ideological enemies that they've assigned. And so now it's really not about making money. You know, you could, you like um, YouTube with the adpocalypse and all of these other problems like YouTube and the advertisers, if they were just concerned about money, when the wall street journal's like, Oh my God, PewDiePie said uh, a naughty word or uh, made a joke about Nazis or something. They'd just shrug and go, so what? So what? Our sales are up. Why do we care? You know, but they didn't. They all react and, oh, no, that's terrible. Shut things down and you know, ad- advertisers pull out. And it's like, these are not business interests. You know, YouTube lost like, I don't know, 50, 70 billion, something like that. They lost billions of billions of dollars doing this. So if it was just purely about business interests, there's no way that would have been the case. And yet here we are. And you can, you know, see like Susan Wojcicki, uh, you know, and listen to her in interviews. Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, they do have moral interests. And so it it is wrong for the leftists to just, you know, separate those and say, right, never the twain meet. Because it's not true. This is exactly your point. Do you think that there's a common thread between the survival of Jordan Peterson when the the Penguin Random House staff threatened Mm -hmm. to walk out over his new book and then the political staff rebelled against Ben Shapiro writing their playbook and then J.K. Rowling's book caused the uproar with Hatchet last year? Is that lesson to learn that if you're big enough, you're immune from being cancelled? Um, yes, because while, while, um, while these businesses are not purely based on economic motivations, they still have economic motivations. Uh, and JK Rowling, I think is the best example because she controls the rights to the Harry Potter franchise. She controls, uh, the sort of, um, the way that the franchise is represented. She controls the, uh, the, the, the essential decision-making capacity. And so the buck stops with her and she makes the money from it. Um, which means she can't actually be canceled if anyone else wants to make any money off Harry oh, Potter. Shit. So is that, has she constructed her business to be like universal studios got to come to me when they want to do a new theme yes. park and the merchandising yes. and, and she, she gets to be able to sign off on, uh, the sort of, um, tenor and tone of the thing as well you know like does it fit with the mythos uh, which gives her phenomenal power over the harry potter franchise as i understand it if i'm wrong someone in the comments correct me but i looked into this recently because i did a bit of a thing uh, a few segments on them trying to cancel her and they can't cancel her because if they cancel her nobody gets any harry potter and I mean, probably billions of people want Harry Potter, you know, at least hundreds of millions at the very least. Uh, you know, she's, she's probably like the most successful British author ever. So there's, there's just no cancelling her because she holds this point of leverage and industries die if they don't get what she's providing. And so the, the, the activists on Twitter have been whining impotently and uh, it's been very amusing to watch, to be honest. And J.K. Rowling, for anyone who doesn't know, her high crime refers back to what we were talking about with the definition of woman. She made the argument that woman is adult human female, and if you get rid of that, you get rid of women's rights activism, which is not wrong. And this makes her a horrible turf. Do you not think that it's mad? You've got J.K. Rowling was very much in the zeitgeist at the time, though. You know, she's current and doing stuff. Jordan yep. Peterson had been in rehab for 18 months. Like and yeah. and people had just taken this heritage of him again. Shapiro, mm-hmm. like Ben, Ben does his thing. Like he's out yeah. there talking about stuff. Jordan had been in Russia, tied to a bed, trying to trying to sweat drugs out of his system. Yeah, but I think um, J.K. Rowling is just the most obvious and easy example to pin down. Right, because you can see exactly the linchpin. That when J.K. Rowling gives up the right to make editorial decisions about Harry Potter franchise, she's cancelled. Right, um, but it's it's not so easy with people like Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro because they're they're um, 
their staying power is based on something a bit more um in, in intangible uh, it's it's respect and influence and sort of gravitas and that can be uh, manipulated with the right disinformation campaign absolutely which i think is why the times recently uh put out a lie about him being diagnosed with schizophrenia an attempt to discredit him as an intellectual as in his mind is somehow you know insecure and not not he's not sane or something like this this wasn't true John uh, John Peterson released the full interview of the Times. I listened to it. He didn't say they'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia. I haven't, see, I haven't actually, seen that yet. What, what's the what's the, the well, headline? You, you can actually you can actually go to lotusesis.com and we've got an article uh, refuting uh-huh. this on there because um, yeah, it's just not true. The, the 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 Times has claimed that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. He hasn't been. Uh, I don't know why that they're claiming this, but I can only assume that they're making up this outright lie in order to damage his public prestige as an intellectual in order to discredit him within conservative circles and wider the, the wider sort of normie public in order to essentially just get rid of him because he doesn't agree with certain things does he Fuck, man that makes me feel so uncomfortable you know like that guy's yeah, been gross. through hell over yep. the last 18 months and you sit down to have yep. an interview i haven't seen the interview yet but like it's, it's on his youtube channel it's just the audio yeah it, uh, it, oh, you know, yeah I, I noticed it was black black screen when i rolled over a preview yeah. it's in my watch later but mm. um yeah man that makes me so uncomfortable like it shouldn't be the case that someone who's been through absolute hell comes back and because people don't like his ideas which for anyone who's ever read anything that jordan's done are not controversial <laughs> he's got no. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of him lecturing students available on the internet go through like scrape out, yep. you know, at least with Shapiro, um, he has that webpage on his site of all of the things he's ever said, which he now r- regrets or wishes that he hadn't said or whatever, which I also think is quite a, a noble thing to do. Um, That's a good idea as well, to be honest. No one ever has, any, there's no rogue tweet from Peterson. Yep. There's no lingering uh, sort of bodies in the cupboard f- for people to get out. There's just misinterpretation. That's all that they have left. But I mean, yep. yeah, I, I, I hope that the more situations that occur like that where unwarrantedly people come after prominent public figures that they don't succeed because there's been a few periods you yourself included where it has succeeded yeah um yeah i mean you you the, the point about john peterson what he has been through uh has, has been the consequence of a media harassment campaign against him you know the reason that he fell into this hole and for any, for any, i mean like you know i i'm i only have sort of a middling fame on the internet uh and in the wider world but even from my middling position i mean you can see how gray the beard is right like it wasn't this gray like two or three years ago <laughs> um it, it's i'm not even joking it's really stressful it's very stressful when you have a lot of eyes on you and there's a lot of pressure coming at you and uh Peterson is like you know 10 times bigger than i'll ever be and so it's it's one of those things that's like, if it's bad enough for where i am it must have been really difficult for him and you like like you were saying you know, go and watch his stuff you can tell that he's a very emotionally aware person you know, and he probably has to be to be a clinical psychologist. Uh, so he's, he's very emotionally connected to things and to other people. And he cares about these things. You know, he's, he's been, he's cried on live streams when thinking about other people's suffering and stuff like this unashamedly, you know, and it's, it's very brave actually to do this. And I've seen lots of leftists mocking him for showing his feelings. So well, hang on a second. I thought that's what you wanted out of men. You know, what are you doing? You know, don't, when he opens up, don't stab him, you know, Christ. But, um, 
but yeah, for, so for for Peterson, I can understand why this was just too much for him to handle. Uh, why he ended up falling down this this sort of rabbit hole and having to spend a lot of effort dragging himself back up. And like you say, you know, if you watch any of his stuff, he's talking essentially. He's essentially giving you the sort of like best dad advice that can be given. You know, <laughs> yeah, get your is, house he's, in he's order. The ultimate what dad, are you, isn't he? He is, but it's great advice for young people, not just young men, but I think young men need it more than young women because there are lots of social support structures for young women everywhere because of feminism. But young men definitely, I think, need this kind of guidance where it's like, look, get your house in order, sort yourself out, clean your room, get on, you know, get on the, the, the business end of actually doing something and improving your life. And, uh, I mean, you know, I've, I've taken his advice to heart, you know, I've, and I think a lot of other people have as well. And, really does work it's just about taking responsibility for yourself and if that is if that's his high crime and that's the great offense that jordan peterson has committed well i guess we're all in trouble aren't we we're fucked as a world do you think uh trump is going to go away now or is there any chance that he's going to run in 2024 what's your ideas around this I have no idea and I don't I don't dare make any predictions because all predictions are aging very badly at the moment. Uh I mean is can you think of a single person who has made a good prediction in the last 5 years? Like no, I can't man, think I mean, of one. Uh Morgan Housel who's a financial expert tweeted at the start mm-hmm. of last year saying about how much time people had spent analyzing the 2010 until 2019 decade of trading and extrapolating out all of the different charts for the coronavirus to come in and just totally sideswipe everything yeah. that they'd done. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, the, the political environment is very unstable at the moment. Uh, so I I don't predict, but I wouldn't be surprised if in 2024 he runs again. Uh, I expect that he will. And I think he would be a, a powerful force if he did. Um, less powerful now that he's been deplatformed from every Silicon Valley platform. Um, and that's what the Silicon Valley cartel know. They know that this has reach and influence and power. Um, so really, if I were Donald Trump and I were thinking about it, I would choose an alternative social media network and make that the network that I used. Uh, and then you can get probably hundreds of millions of people to at least look at it occasionally, uh, if not join it and actively participate. But I mean, the the social media alternatives, Parler was doing fantastically well until they got deplatformed. Uh, and Gab is also doing fantastically well and they can't be deplatformed. Because as I as I understand it, Gab are responsible for their own infrastructure. Although I've been told that's not entirely correct. So I'm not, I'm not sure about the details really. But uh, but basically Andrew Torber who runs Gab has been deplatformed in the same way that Parler was. And so he is uh, protected against that. They can't do that twice. Uh, and so Trump should choose a platform that Silicon Valley can't deplatform and get to work. He's got a few years if he wants to do it. He's he can do this. You know, he's got the money, he's got the time, he's got uh, the political capital to do it as well. Especially as the ma- the MAGA base um generally don't feel that this was legitimate. They think that this was a stolen election whether you agree with them or not. Um so if Trump uh, starts getting back into the action, uh I think that he'll do very well. The thing is it it also might be a wise um political move to actually let the situation breathe for a while, right? Because what Joe Biden is doing at the moment makes him, by his own standards, kind of look like a dictator. Uh, he was the one criticizing excessive use of executive orders, and then 30 of them plus in his first week. And it's like, okay, what are you doing? You know, and the radical, radical changes, you know, bringing uh, critical race theory training, uh, or, you know, all of the changes to the military, transgenderism and things like this. And it's like, okay, th- these are, these are, 
sweeping changes that Biden is making. And they're not good changes. They're not, they're not changes that the general public actually endorses. You know, how many, how many of the general public want frontline female soldiers? Probably not that many of them. You know, it's, it's very much the sort of progressive wing of their party that's driving the agenda. And Biden's just leaping, you know, both feet in. You know, he just doesn't seem to care about any, any objections now. And so it's like, right, okay, let him govern badly. You give, know, him let, enough, let, give him enough rope. Exactly. Give him enough rope. So if, if I, I mean, Trump waits like six months through a year before getting like fully engaged back into politics, uh, then he might find himself with a, a very weak opposition where they've overextended. You know, they've tried to impeach him, which I don't think is going to work because I don't think they're going to get the votes. And so that'll be a waste of their own political capital. It'll give people like AOC time to sort of march around on the field of victory and be really insufferable and put a lot of people's backs up just by the way that they operate. And I think that's happening. Um, and it'll, the, the Republicans have kind of been routed after the Capitol riots. Uh, and so they give them time to sort of regroup, allow Biden to ruin things and then come back in a big storm and hopefully uh, take it. But, uh, but again, not a prediction, just a kind of fantasy of what I think could happen. Dude. So, so one thing that Malice said, which really, really struck a chord with me is people thought that Trump was the river when in fact he was the dam, mm. a lot of right-leaning Americans felt like they were being represented by Trump. And look mm -hmm. what happens when you take away that dam. They no longer have anybody that's speaking for them. They no yep. longer have anyone that they feel is representing them. So fuck it, insurrection. I uh, there, there is definitely a strong undercurrent of the republic is over in a lot of the Republican circles now, um, which is not good. You know, it's not the, good at the all. the most powerful country with the most nukes in the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too worried about that. Um, but what it is, is if, if America becomes consumed with its own internal disputes, then people like China and Russia are always watching from the margins and seeking to, I mean, China's already been violating Taiwanese airspace and things like this, right? Okay, this has not taken long. Uh, Joe Biden is not going to have a firm hand with China like Trump did. Uh, and it, uh, it will not be to the benefit of the United States. Um, and you, I think you, I think you're really right about the damn thing. Trump, Trump really seemed to have been holding back a lot of, uh, initiatives that really seem to have a negative intention towards the average American person uh, in favor of fringe activist groups who have been making their voices very well heard but don't represent a very sizable constituency even necessarily of the minorities they claim to represent uh, like for example feminists like very few women are actually feminists like less than 10 percent of women self-identify as a feminist uh, and whereas 80 percent of women will say well yeah i think there should be equality between men and women so the overwhelming majority agree with the basic feminist premise but they won't identify as feminists because they don't want to join that activist group because they can see that this is the you know the man-hating lunatics right and so the biden is catering to these fringe internet activists with everything and so like let it you know let it go it'll it'll be insufferable but um you'll when 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 this has gone on for enough time hopefully someone from the republicans who is capable and competent and decent will come along uh, i've noticed that they're really going hard on a senator called josh hawley at the moment because he wanted to represent his constituents concerns about the lack of apparent transparency and their belief in the invalidity of the election and the electoral process and he is being treated as if he led some sort of armed insurrection into the capital 
which he didn't. He was in there giving his testimony when the event occurred. So the fact that they're treating him as if he was leading it is very interesting to me. And he hasn't backed down on this either. He got deplatformed from his book and he hasn't backed down. And so I'm I'm thinking someone like him is probably if because you know Trump Trump's going to be in his late 70s by 2024 and as vital as Trump is, as energetic as Trump is, that is old, you know, and it is a very stressful job and et cetera. Uh, but Josh Hawley looks like he's in his 40s, um, the right kind of age to start pushing forward with this kind of, if, if I mean, he might not be that way inclined. He might be a Wall Street guy, you know, he might have been bought off. He might not be a populist in any way, but that's not the impression I've got from him, actually. He seems to be interested in representing the sort of rural working class and the rural interests. Um, and someone like that is definitely necessary for the American political system, if it wants to survive, I think. I think if one side is just not represented, and one of the things you notice about the Democrats is they are going hard on their Republican opponents. They are they are trying to extirpate them as much as possible. And that's the exact wrong maneuver to take if you think you're a legitimate winner. You don't want to punish the opposition for losing. You know, that's not what a democratic system is meant to be. But instead, they're acting like they didn't win. You know, they're acting like they've done something wrong. They're acting like they've got guilty consciences. And, uh, and yeah, I don't, I don't think it's sustainable. I think they'll overreach. One of the things I've noticed is a change in the attitude towards American national pride. I can't tell mm-hmm. if this is actually happening at a cultural level because all <laughs> my information around gets filtered through their media, obviously. Yeah. But it definitely seems to be a lot less about like the Star Spangled Banner and pledging allegiance <laughs> than it used to be. Is someone killing American national pride? Oh, absolutely. It's the left. And it's been a coordinated effort for at least the last two decades. And honestly, I I remember back in about 2001, in fact, that I was kind of a part of it without knowing it. Um, When when the Twin Towers had been uh, blown up, uh, crashed planes into, collapsed, um, there was this distinct feeling that this was unacceptable American nationalism when George Bush was there on the ruins with an American flag and people chanting USA, right? There was a, there was a distinct feeling, uh, on the left that this was scary and this was going to lead to fascism. This was going to be, and don't get me wrong. I don't approve of any of the consequences of 9-11 <laughs> or 9-11 itself. Uh, I didn't support the invasion of, the, of Iraq or anything like that. Um, and there, there were obviously terrible consequences from that, but, um, but I think this has been, that was the flashpoint that started the left on a, a sort of conscious attempt to undermine American patriotism. And, uh, and I think that that has been successful. I think that much of the left now openly admit that they hate America. They think it's an imperialist, white supremacist power. They think capitalism is inherently uh, a racist structure that's designed to oppress people. And the communists who have been pushing this view of the world have been very, very successful in planting the seeds in the left and destroying the patriotic left, the sort of you know, the sort of working class left who actually like America and just want the rich to give them a bit of the pie. Uh, Those people have been totally marginalized. And now it's whites versus blacks or, you know, straights versus gays and all this. So now it doesn't really reflect actually what's happening because I don't agree that there's a race war going on. I don't agree that there's a gender war going on. You know, I don't agree that straight people are waging war against gay people and trying to keep them down. That's just not my experience of life. And maybe I'm talking from a position of privilege, being a straight white man. Uh, but the only the only gender or race war or like sexuality war that I see is being waged by the left. You know, so I think uh, I think the left have done this quite self consciously in many ways. 
I think in the UK, we're already used to kind of British national pride being seen as the realm of racists and working class yeah. thugs, right? Like hanging a flag up is the sort yeah. of thing that the community watch ring the council about and you get people, oh, absolutely. You get people around to your yeah. house. I wonder if America will end up like that. I fear not. I don't think that they will. I think that it's too strong, that patriotism. It's been very, very, very ingrained, mm-hmm. but the left do definitely seem like they're making a good job of trying to deconstruct that. Yeah, I mean, they're very good at playing the long game. So in, in 2001, it didn't look like there was any possibility of demolishing American patriotism. But here we are going, well, God, are the Americans even going to be patriotic next year? You know, so it, and it's only been 20 years. So it doesn't take that long. It doesn't take that long in the grand scheme of things. Uh, and you're right. Obviously, over here, it's gross how unpatriotic we're allowed to be. This is why I've got the flag behind me. I'm not naturally a flag flying guy. Like this, you know, it's not something that I would naturally do, but in the current circumstances, given the current context, oh yeah, we're having a British flag, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and if we get told off for that, an English flag goes up as well, if that's what they want, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not backing down on this. You know, I, I bought an English flag a while ago for the first time ever. And I was like, okay, what do I do with it now? <laughs> like, you know, do I go and fly this outside my house? Is that going to be imposing on the neighbors? I don't know. But, uh, but I bought it just to say I had it because I'm sick of the genuinely anti-patriotic feeling that the left is pumping out and it's because they're essentially communist now socialist or communist which is essentially a synonym um and they they view uh national pride as a form of false consciousness they they view national pride as a barrier to communism which it is uh, which is why we should support and uphold it which is why you should get a flag <laughs> yeah fair point it's it is bizarre like you go through you go to gyms go to a crossfit gym in in America, and you'll see hanging from the ceiling, there'll be U.S. Marine, Navy mm-hmm. Corps, there'll be the red, white, and blue Star-Spangled Banner, and there'll be like some other stuff as well. And you just think like there's such a, at least this was three years ago, might have changed now. Yeah, um, it just felt like there's such a cohesive. I was I actually got quite jealous. I had like yeah. um, country jealousy in a way where I was yeah. like, man, I've never. Have you ever heard anyone say, I am proud to be a British citizen? Like, I'm proud to be British, you know? Like, saying the sentence, I'm proud to be British, sounds like it's something that comes out of that Muslim Ray Gangs uh, video from a few years two, ago. Two, two, two places, right? Uh, none of the, neither of them in Britain. Uh, the first one, the, f- the first one not Hong Kong, was, I, and nearly, uh, I, I grew up on a, a military base in Germany. Uh, obviously it was called Joint Headquarters JHQ. It's near Mönchengladbach, or it was. It's been decommissioned now. Um, but there, that, again, when you're, when you're in close contact with a foreign culture, um, you become very much aware of your own culture and its strengths and weaknesses and the virtues and vices of it. And then you become a lot more self-reflective about the thing. And so you, you, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, you know, chess beating nationalism or anything, but, it, you know, that was the sort of vibe that it had. And because it was a military base, you'd have, you know, the flag and things like that on flagpoles, you know, so it felt more patriotic. And uh, the other, the only other place I felt this is in Gibraltar when I went over there for the MEP tour. Um, it was like a, a very beautiful uh, British village that's been transplanted to the south of Spain and there were British flags everywhere. And it was lovely, you know, because the weather was amazing for a start and uh, everyone was really nice. You know, everything was really relaxed and friendly and there was, you know, British flags everywhere and everything was very patriotic. Wasn't it Callum? You know, Callum went with me. It was great. Um, and, uh, and we had a great time there and it, it just felt very nice and very relaxed. And, you know, it was wholesome. It was good, but they're the only two places, not in Britain. So bizarre, man. So bizarre. Yeah. Uh, give me your thoughts on AOC. 
know that you you like to think well, about it sometimes. Not really. <laughs> I, unfortunately, she's kind of forced into the dialogue, isn't she? Yeah. she injects herself into the news. Yeah, I, I, I basically view her as a kind of, um, kind of like a, a Robespierre. Really, I think that she's very much like Robespierre. She's, she's a, a politician or a political actor, and she's a, and a radical, a real radical, and she is uncompromising. She's, she does not consider the Republicans to be moral agents. She views them in the same way that uh, the the Hobbits view the agents of Sauron, you know, the the, the Nazgul. She views them like that. Uh, the fact that they exist is an unfortunate necessity and the fact that she has to deal with them, uh, but she will attack them as viciously as possible at every opportunity that she gets. I mean, the, the perfect example recently was her saying, oh, maybe the Wall Street traders should be not stopping people from trading on their platforms. And Ted Cruz said, I agree. And she said, you nearly got me killed. It's like, you should resign. It's like, okay, well, that's not exactly the spirit of cooperation, is it, AOC? Uh, and now today we've got the recent, uh, I, I, I'm a survivor of sexual assault, the way that the Republicans are treating me is basically the same way that I was treated by the person who sexually assaulted me. Therefore, the Republicans are basically gaslighting rapists. And it's like, right, okay, this is not a good faith actor. This is someone who is here to harm you. They're here to undermine you. They're here to destroy you. They're here to get rid of you as much as possible. And if you watch the um, the sort of speeches she gives or the interviews she gives with friendly media, people she knows are inside the progressive club, she almost says exactly these things. She's like, we've got to stop them. We've got to get rid of them. They should resign. We need to replace them. We need to get rid of them and all this sort of stuff. And so it's like, she's not shy about this. And she is the destructive, radical communist force that's entered into democratic politics and is working its way through the social uh, mechanisms of the American body politic damaging people who otherwise shouldn't think that they would be damaged, right? Deplatformings and things like this. AOC is at the crest of that wave. And that's really bad. This kind of bad will, this 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 ill will that travels through the political environment is what's going to destroy the American Republic. Because the American Republic fundamentally is built on the idea of a goodwill that brings together a society from which they can constitute a government. I mean, it's literally in the Declaration of Independence, you know, and it's based on Locke's uh, view of government and society in the state of nature where men come together voluntarily to sacrifice some of their rights in order to provide security and protection for their property. And that will only hold as long as you understand that there is a goodwill in society and the government isn't going to be used to persecute you. But the government is already being used to persecute the MAGA folk who happen to hold strongly to the Lockean view of the American Republic. And so on a subconscious level, I don't doubt that there are many American Republicans out there thinking, my God, the Republic is absolutely over because they're trying to use the government to persecute us. And this this is the incredibly negative effect that people like AOC and the squad are having in American politics. And uh, and don't get me wrong, the right has their own versions of this, but the right, the Republicans, keep out the sort of Richard Spencers and Nick Fuentes's of the right, the, the you know, the, the, the belligerent and unforgiving culture warriors that would be on the right. They don't actually engage them. You know, they, this is, this is why Trump was such a surprise because he's like a halfway house between them and the mainstream Republicans, you know, so in, in an acceptable way politically. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm, I'm not very much a fan of AOC and the way that she operates. Do you think that she believes what she's saying? Because when we saw Kamala Harris last year during the democratic <clears throat> primaries, and she essentially accused Joe Biden of being a 
sexual assaulting, yes. misogynist, whatever it was. And then when asked about it, said... <laughs> It was, it was just a debate. a debate, bro. Yeah, yeah. So I don't believe that Kamala Harris... I like the fact that someone who is such an evident sociopath has made their way yeah. into the second highest seat of power in the free world is... That really scares me. Biden doesn't scare me. Biden doesn't scare no. me. His um, forgetfulness worries me, but he doesn't scare me. However, Kamala Harris really, really does scare me. I'm pretty good judge of people i've spent a lot of time looking at people yeah. and there is something incredibly wrong with that woman um i i think she's a corporate shill i think she just uh is doing this for her own enrichment and the enrichment of her family and friends uh, but aoc i think probably is a true believer i think that she she knows that she's being insanely hyperbolic when she's attacking Republicans. But I think she does on a genuine level believe that they are bad people and should be gotten rid of. But uh, I hate to do this, but um, I allow everyone to clock off at five. And so they're like, you know, come on, come on. Man, so, we're going to uh, have to leave it. We're going to have to leave it all for next we, time. We are going to have to. That's yeah, fine. But I, um, I, dude. I'd love to do another one, man. I'd let's love to let's get one. it done. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for yeah. coming on again. People want to check My out pleasure. more of your stuff. Where should they go? Go to lootseeds.com. Perfect, man. Got lots of stuff there. Carl, thank you. And uh, dude, keep up the gym work. Such an thank you, yeah. Such a pleasure watching the the weight loss journey over the last year. Thank you. Yeah, I've been. I mean, I, I very quickly. I, I basically one of the reasons I set up the office, right? And it's an entirely selfish reason is because I wanted it to be about half an hour away from my house. So I've got I've got a bike, and I'm just every day riding half an hour and back. To, to work and back and yeah i'm i'm feeling great you know I'm, I'm much more fit than i've ever been we've got a, a weight spa so i've been doing pull-ups and stuff and yeah so I'm, I'm quite pleased with how things are going for a, for a man in his 40s i'm feeling pretty good about it things. is snowing outside mate so if you're gonna oh is it I, oh maybe in newcastle <laughs> it, oh yeah it's always snowing here in winter fellas and yeah, anyway yeah. man safe journey home thank you Thanks very much for coming on cheers man bye